This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in the book of Joshua. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. Well, last episode was chapters three through five of Joshua, and the Israelites took their first steps into the promised land. And it was a spiritual experience, to say the least. God went before the current generation, Israel 2.0, as Susan affectionately calls them, and parted the Jordan in a way that was reminiscent of what their parents would have experienced when they crossed the Red Sea. The Israelites memorialize the event. They take 12 stones representing the 12 tribes, and they reaffirm the Abrahamic covenant by circumcising all of the Israel 2.0 men, and then they celebrate the Passover. And then for the first time in 40 years, they ate food from the land. And the manna that God was using to take care of them stopped. That would have been a big deal for me. Well, but they don't need it anymore. And that's exactly the lesson. No, it would have been a big deal just to have like variety. Well, right. You would have been sick and tired of that same old food. But God's going to, the point here is God is going to take care of you as long as he has to. And then when you're in the promised land, you're going to get to eat the food from the promised land. These kids, the 2.0s, had never tasted anything but manna. Can you imagine when they took a first bite of like grapes or something? Yeah, they probably thought fruit was amazing. Yeah. And then finally, last episode, the Canaanites reacted by melting with fear. And we learned a lot about what that really meant. All right. In chapter five, continued from last episode, the conquest of Canaan begins with the mysterious stranger. Joshua 5, verse 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Okay, so strange conversation there. What was Joshua thinking? There is no background here, so it's hard to guess the setting of this conversation. Where was Joshua? Why wasn't anyone with him? He is the leader of a nation in enemy territory. Did they let him take walks alone with no bodyguards? He must have been outside because he has his sandals on and his tent couldn't have been considered holy ground. Joshua clearly also does not have a weapon with him, or he would have instinctively drawn it in response. So he must not be outside of the camp. The stranger also is super stealthy, for Joshua is a veteran warrior, and I would have think he couldn't be easily surprised, but he was. Can you imagine the wheels turning in Joshua's head? His mind, first searching every word in the book of law that he had been memorizing and commanded to meditate on day and night. Um, Who is the commander of the Lord's army? Nope, nothing there in the book of the law about that. Then searching every conversation with Moses for a mention of a heavenly commander, because surely Moses would have told him if he were to have a commander. However, I do like his fearless style in the way he responded. Armed only with the brawny build of Henry Cavill, he boldly steps forward, ready to take the stranger with his bare hands and asks, who are you for? Who is this stranger? 
who seems combative with a drawn sword. There are similarities to the stranger and past mysterious visitors, such as Abraham's visit from three strangers in Genesis 18, one of whom was the Lord. Jacob's wrestling with a stranger in Genesis 32, who most likely was the Lord. And Moses' meeting in a burning bush in Exodus 3 which again was the Lord. In this instance, Joshua is instructed with the same words as Moses at the burning bush. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The phrase holy ground always indicates that God is present and that a major event or miracle is about to unfold. For Moses, it was the plagues and the battle with Pharaoh. For Joshua, it will be the battle with the Canaanites and Jericho in particular. While God may be present, this stranger is not the Lord, but an angel. This isn't our first encounter with a sword-bearing angel, and it won't be our last. In Numbers 22, the angel of the Lord appeared with a drawn sword in his hand and blocked the path of the talking donkey and Balaam, the, the oracle. And in First Chronicles 21, David sees an angel of the Lord with a drawn sword on the threshing floor. Now, this stranger angel identifies himself as the commander of the army of the Lord, and he says he has arrived. His only allegiance is to God, however, although he will be fighting for Israel because Israel is currently following God. However, God was clear in Deuteronomy that if Israel did not follow him, he would do to them what he is about to do to the Canaanites, remove them from the land. If that happens, then we can assume the angel would fight against Israel. Now, while Joshua meets with the commander of the Lord's army, the city of Jericho senses the ominous presence of God and the impending doom. The city is silent. The people are still frozen in place, their hearts melting in fear as everyone waits for the end to draw near. This is the fall of Jericho, chapter 6. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Another weird statement. See, I have delivered. How did Joshua know? Could Joshua actually see that Jericho was already theirs? Remember, there are still two layers of walls around the city Jericho and lots of protected fighting men behind those walls. So the chances of a victory do not look good. We often think the Bible as a book is too long, but many times when I read these stories, I wish there was more, not less detail. Could Joshua actually see a highlight reel or movie trailer of the fall of Jericho? Moses, we know, saw a lot of stuff in his mountain meetings with God that I would like to know more about, but not till we get to heaven. In any case, the fact that God had a direct conversation with Joshua about this battle was all the assurance that anyone would need to know that the victory was a sure thing. Next, God proceeds to lay out his unorthodox but effective plan. Verse 3. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up 
everyone straight in. This is the plan of crazy sevens. Seven priests, seven trumpets, seven days. For six days, one march around the city. On the seventh day, seven marches around the city. Verse six. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. And Jericho watched from inside the walls. Now, I wonder how many hours it took the entire Israel army to make one loop around the city. It would be a pretty long line of men. What, 40,000 fighting men they had? And then the priests too? And it must have been a big loop because if they walked too close to the wall, the people of Jericho would have thrown stuff at them. They did have spears and the bow and arrow back then, so they were armed inside the wall. Now, what were the people of Jericho thinking? Seven trumpets doesn't seem too very loud or disturbing, so I don't think that would have bothered me. When the Israelites left after the first day, did the people of Jericho celebrate? Did they think that the Israelites were giving up because the city was too fortified? What about on the second day or the third? Or maybe the Canaanites came to believe that the Israelites were trying to starve them out. But the harvest had just ended. So that wouldn't have been a good strategy because they were stockpiled. And what were the other kingdoms in Canaan thinking? Because surely merchants from other kingdoms had tried to approach Jericho during the seven days and seeing that the city was under siege, left, ran home and spread the news. The area had to be crawling with spies from every kingdom by the seventh day. They probably were camped out at a distance, just watching in puzzled amazement. Imagine new onlookers arriving daily and asking, so uh, how long have they been doing this? And uh, are you sure it's the same every day? They just march around and go home? Perhaps this was God's plan all along, because by the time the walls fell, there were many witnesses from all over Canaan with the front row seat to the greatest show on earth, the fall of Jericho. The news would spread and all would have the opportunity 
throughout the land to know and believe that God was the one true God. Verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. In this chapter, there are 12 mentions of the number seven a sign of the completeness and perfection of God's victory over Jericho. We've talked about this before. Seven is the number of completeness throughout the Bible with dozens of uses from Genesis to Revelations. The most obvious being the seven days of creation and the seventh day being a day of rest as set aside for the Lord. Verse 20, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword everything living in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. So I want to talk about two things here. First, the Jordan River flooded and the walls of Jericho collapsed. And the the remains thousands of years later are fascinating to read about. Could there be one explanation for both of these miracles? Yes, because God is the creator and master over creation. Let me explain. The Jordan Valley is part of the Great Rift Valley, which is an unstable region with frequent earthquakes. On a number of occasions in recorded history, 1927 being the most recent, earthquakes have dammed the River Jordan in the area of Adam, located to the north where the Israelites crossed the Jordan. Adam, the city, was mentioned in chapter 3, verse 16, as the place where the river stopped flowing when the Israelites crossed the Jordan. All right, so that's the Jordan. The remains of the wall of Jericho with the defense tower can be seen today. Excavations conducted at Jericho indicate that an earthquake occurred at the time the city was destroyed. Did God, the creator of the earth, use one tremor to dam the Jordan River and a second days later to bring down the walls? It is a very plausible theory. Remember Psalm 114 mentioned in the last episode? Perhaps it is a confirmation. Psalm 114, the odd verses. When Israel came out of Egypt, Jacob from a people of foreign tongue, the sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back. Why was it sea that you fled? Why Jordan did you turn back? Tremble earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. Could it be that the earth trembled and quaked at the presence of the Lord, who remember the angel had said, you are standing on holy ground, which means that the presence of the Lord was with them when they crossed the Jordan, damming the Jordan River and felling the walls of Jericho. In the next episode, 
the battle will be won and Jericho will be annihilated. So I want to pause to discuss one more thing. The Hebrew concept of harem. Now the word harem is another word like hased, which we discussed a few episodes ago, that carries more meaning than what we read in the dictionary. Harem means devoted or dedicated in Hebrew. In harem warfare, everything and everyone in a specific area was dedicated for destruction. Harem has different applications depending on the context. In its extreme form, like with Jericho, harem referred to the total destruction of a city, including its inhabitants, livestock, and possessions. This was typically carried out in cases where the city and its inhabitants were devoted to idolatry and a significant spiritual threat to the Israelites. In other instances, harem was a ban placed on certain types of the spoils of war. This meant that such items were either destroyed or devoted to God for use in the tabernacle. These devoted things could not be applied personally, which unfortunately is a hard lesson for the Israelites in the next chapter. Why would anyone ever steal from God? He sees everything, but they're going to make the mistake. Just watch. Harem was harsh, but it was sometimes necessary during this period and served the very important purpose of eliminating the risk of Israel falling out of favor with God. Their very survival and future possession of the promised land depended entirely on the obedience to God. And the harem ensured that they would not disobey by worshiping Canaanite gods. Lastly, the concept of harem was a practice of ancient Israel. Today, Jews are guided by a different set of principles and practices. So before we discuss the Canaanites' annihilation and harem, what is the backstory on the people of Canaan? Okay, pop quiz, Heather, Uh-oh. on season one of Bible Book Club. And You're going to expose how old I am and my I, lack of memory. I did not warn her about this, but I think she's going to do great. First question. When Noah got off the ark, and there's a purpose for all these questions. We're talking about the people of Canaan and where they come, came from. When Noah got off the ark, he had three sons. What were their names? Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Ding, 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 ding. Good job. Okay. Which of the three carries the promised seed that eventually leads to Christ? Japheth. No, no. Shem. 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 I knew it. Shem. Okay, let's talk about these three peoples because it's going to get back to Canaan. Shem's people, also called the Semites, became 26 nations. So I'm talking about the table of nations here. They are um, the also called the Semitic line. And you may also, so that's where the Semitic line comes from. They're also, sometimes you've heard the word anti-Semitism. That, again, means anti-Jewish because they're the line. So terms, these are terms that came from this one son, Shem. Now, while this line includes the Israelites who carry the promised seed, it also includes many people who don't. Because remember, Shem gave birth to Abraham eventually. And there's lots of people that Abraham fathered. They did spread out these people into Persia, Mesopotamia, where Abraham came from, northern Assyria, Palestine, Jordan, and Arabia. And we have met some of the people from Shem on our journey to the promised land because God forbade Israel to fight with them. So these are people that came from Abraham, 
but aren't really from ultimately that line of the promised seed, such as the Moabites, who are descendants from Lot, the Edomites, descendants from Esau, and the Midianites, descendants from Abraham through his wife Keturah. So the first two were not descendants from from Abraham, they're descendants from Shem. You got that? Mm -hmm. I don't want to confuse you. Yeah. Now today, people from the Semitic line include the Jews, Arabs, Assyrians, and Samaritans, because they all came from Shem. Yeah, as I recall, Japheth went north and they became like the... Ireland, Scotland, and Ham went south and became like the Egyptians and the Persians, right? You are spot on. You are getting your ace in this test. So the other two sons form two branches that are called the non-Semitic people. They're Japheth because the Japhethites or 14 nations that spread out, they spread out to the northwest of Canaan, including Asia and Europe, which of course led to America. Japheth's line disappears from our current storyline and doesn't really reappear until the New Testament when Greece and Rome play a large role. Now, Ham, the Hamites became the largest with 30 nations and All three, again, make up the 70 nations in the Table of Nations. The Hamites had control of Canaan and spread south and east into Egypt and Africa with traces in southeastern Arabia along the coast. Now, show note, I will put a link to the map of the Table of Nations in the show notes that we've shared before so you can see where all these populations developed. In all, there were 70, like I mentioned, and this is the Table of Nations. Now, if you recall season one, starting in episode 10, Ham was a bad dude, and so was his son Canaan, hence Canaanites. It is unclear what they did to Noah in chapter 10 of Genesis, except that it says Ham saw his father's nakedness and he told his brothers, who, to their credit, the brothers covered Noah up. So the brothers, Japheth and Shem, did the right thing. Whatever Ham did, it was wrong and revealed his impure heart. He took advantage of his father Noah when he was incapacitated and lay uncovered. We also know that whatever Ham did, his son Canaan was involved because when Noah woke up and found out what had happened, he cursed Canaan and blessed Shem and Japheth, which is odd. He cursed his grandson and blessed his sons, Shem and Japheth. Now, the propensity to sin stuck for this line of people from Ham. In fact, Ham was the father of all three of the nations that at some point held Israel captive. Egypt was one from whom the Israelites had just escaped after 400 years of slavery, and Babylon and Assyria, captors of Israel in books to come, were also from Ham. Ham is also the father of the tribes inhabiting the promised land in our current story of Joshua, the tribes that Joshua must conquer. The most prominent are the Anakites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gibeonites, Girgashites, Hittites, Hivites, Jebusites, Perizzites, and ultimately the Philistines. In our story, the descendants of Shem, and specifically the tribe of Israel, are the protagonists. They're the ones we want to win. (laughs) And the descendants of Ham, the many tribes inhabiting Canaan, are the antagonists, the one we want to lose. Because God chose to use those who were faithful to bring the hope of salvation to the world. Those people are listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, their whole line. 
Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, by mention of Jericho, because his name isn't specifically in the Hall of Faith, Rahab, grafted into Israel, but not originally an Israelite, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And those who were unfaithful, those who chose to oppose God and thwart his plan of redemption were the enemies of Israel and are the enemies of Jesus Christ. So why did God command harem against the Canaanites? Listen to Genesis 15, 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. In this verse, God was talking to Abraham and telling him, forward thinking, this is what's going to happen. The destruction of the nations of Canaan was not just to make a place for Israel. It was a judgment on the wickedness of those nations. Moses then warned Israel in Deuteronomy 9. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he adds to it in um, when he tells Joshua in Joshua 1. In verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. In other words, there will be no conquest in Canaan without Israel's obedience. God would not fight for the people who are fighting against him. In order to succeed, Joshua and the Israelites must obey God's commandments. And if they do obey and the conquest is successful, the Israelites should not boast about it, that it was because of their righteousness that God drove out the nations. No, he makes it clear. It was because God had seen the wickedness of the people of Canaan and purposed to harem them or destroy them. And he made the promise to Abraham and would fulfill it. Had Joshua and Israel 2.0 failed, they would have been rejected and God would have started over with a new generation. And that is why there is this concept of harem. It is not because God was trying to make a place for Israel. It was because the descendants of Ham were super wicked and they needed to be destroyed. All right. I want to do one more little thing in this episode. I want to compare Joshua and Jesus. I thought this was sweet. Joshua and Jesus are similar in that they both fought evil. Joshua was chosen to drive evil out of Canaan so Israel would live well in the land. And Jesus came to drive evil out of the world so that people could live well in eternity. Joshua's victory came through the shedding of the enemy's blood, but Jesus's victory came through the shedding of his own blood. In the conquest of Canaan, Joshua points to Jesus, the true conqueror who will end evil for all time. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome, welcome to, to the, the club. club. 
New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.